If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 195 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Chris McLeod, director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Duke University. Duke happens to be just right down the road from us here in North Carolina. And Jeff, I know you have family members who have been very active with Osher Lifelong Learning there. So you had both professional and personal interest in talking with Chris. What did the two of you cover? Well, for listeners who aren't familiar with them, we start off talking about what the Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes are. Basically, a little of the history and some background on how they work. And there are more than 120 of them associated with universities and colleges around the country. And we're lucky to have multiple institutes here in North Carolina. Now, Osher Institutes tend to focus on lifelong learners above the age of 50. So Chris and I discussed what the general characteristics are of that group of learners to the extent that it's possible to generalize, as well as the opportunities and challenges that come with serving them. And as you might expect, we also talk about the Osher Institutes, both at Duke and more broadly, as learning businesses and the factors that tend to underpin the success of the most successful programs. Osher really does seem to be one of the most, if not the most, recognized names when it comes to lifelong learning programs for older adults. They're obviously doing something right, and so it's really great to add the perspective of this segment of the learning business to the wealth of perspectives we've gathered here on the Leading Learning Podcast so far. And I know listeners are going to benefit from what Chris McLeod has to share. So let's roll the interview. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Jeff Cobb and today I'm joined by Chris McLeod. Chris is director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Duke University, which is right down the road from Leading Learning Global Headquarters. The Institute at Duke is one of the largest and one of the leading lifelong learning institutions in the United States. For any listeners who may not be familiar with Osher Lifelong Learning, we'll definitely cover that as part of the show. But first, Chris, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm so glad to, to have you here. Uh, we had the, the chance to meet in person uh, recently, which uh, that was also great. Uh, but now to be connecting, uh, I, I know there are listeners out there who are going to be eager to hear about your work. So to start off with, it'd be great if you could tell listeners a bit more about you and your work. And maybe as part of that, you can give us a brief overview of Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes for those who may not be familiar with them. Sure. Um, what's really extraordinary is there's actually a network of 123 Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes in the country. Uh, They were all endowed by Bernard Osher with the Bernard Osher Foundation. Mr. Osher is a philanthropist who lives in San Francisco, and he and his wife, Barbara, um, have really been passionate advocates for lifelong learning. And they've basically, you know, um, approach lifelong learning institutes that have been affiliated with universities and over time started out making very modest grants uh, to these programs. And over time, as the um, attendance and membership of these institutes grew, um, they gave even more um, support. So most of the Osher lifelong 
learning institutes have an endowment of somewhere between a million to $2 million, which is a really key cornerstone of the um, financial pro forma of these programs. Um, Duke is, you know, seven or eight in terms of the top 10 largest. Um, We have about 2,400 members. Um, The Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes offer non-credit courses, um, mostly to mature learners, although at Duke, we do not have an age restriction around that. Anybody of any age can take our courses. Um, And again, they're affiliated usually in continuing ed um, education programs of colleges and universities. Um, I joined OLLI, um, we also call it OLLI at Duke, um, last summer in June um, as a new director. And um, so this past year has been one of a lot of learning for me as well. Um, My background was primarily fundraising and development. And since uh, Duke is really, has been growing, um, the membership has been growing significantly. We've been at capacity in terms of our enrollment for several years. So the intention is for us to um, locate a new uh, facility and expand um, our classroom um, offerings. That's that's a great position to to be in, uh, where you need to to find more space, basically. And and my my understanding is there there are more than 120 of these institutes uh, across the U.S., um, and I think one in um, pretty much every state, including the District of of Columbia. Is that that correct? That is correct. And and we actually, in North Carolina, we're fortunate to have... um, Three of, excuse me, three of them, UNC Asheville, NC State, um, Wilmington, and Duke, actually, so four total um, in North Carolina alone. The one thing that's important to understand is that um, there's a saying at the national conferences, um, because we all get together about every 18 months, all the directors, um, is that if you've been to one OLLI, you've been to one OLLI. They Mm. all have very different cultures and uh, course offerings and programs, Um, even our colleagues at NC State um, have a very robust program, but they tend to have more a la carte single presentation programs, some three to six week long courses. Duke's kind of recognized for having, um, and UNC Astral in particular, have longer courses, nine, 10, 12 week long courses. Hmm. Interesting. And now I know, you know, you said that um, you work with learners. You don't. You don't have a, a an age restriction on your learners. Correct. Um, but I know that Ali in general tends to to focus over the age of, of fifty or, or just you know older learners basically. Um, so I mean, aside from dropping the emphasis on tests and grades, you know that are part of typical college uh, and, and even a lot of you know continuing education and professional development type experiences. How do you find that um, teaching and engaging? with learners in, in the older age group uh, tends to be different from teaching and engaging with younger learners? Well, you know, actually what our instructors tell us is um, they love our students because of their level of enthusiasm, the level of engagement and questions that they ask in class. Mm. We have a handful, maybe three or four instructors who teach at the university level, but who also teach for us for free because they love our students and they love the questions that they're asked. Hmm. I think the best part about, um, you know, what's offered is we don't have to guess what they want. Our members to let us know very clearly the types of classes they want. Um, in fact, you know, last summer, I remember, um, you know, a member saying that they would love to have a class on the, the American Constitution. And by the spring term, we were able to find an instructor to teach a six-week-long class on the American Constitution and constitutional thought. Um, so they're, they're not shy. They'll tell you exactly what they want. 
we also have a 30-member um, curriculum committee that is completely responsible for sourcing all of our instructors and navigating, you know, them through the course proposal process. Um, and we teach about 400 classes a year. And I can't take any credit for the courses that are offered. They're all, you know, all of this is done by volunteers in response to what members ask for. Yeah, wow, that, that's that's amazing to have that that volume of courses. And as you said, you know, many of those are, uh, most of them, I guess, are multi-week uh, courses. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's quite a commitment and quite a quite a service that's uh, that's being provided there. And uh, kudos to the volunteers who are helping to make that happen. Well, we're also in a lo- in a community in the Research Triangle Park with you know five or six different universities, um, where you have a real, um, you know generous, you know, pool of faculty to, to, um, pull from Mm. uh, among graduate students, doctoral students. So, um, we're we're able to, um, and, and a lot of, you know, expert retirees. That, that is a great, uh, advantage to have, uh, in, in offering lifelong learning. And you, you mentioned that, um, you know, the, the teachers, and I can imagine being in this position as a teacher, it's just, it's just so nice to have, you know, students who are engaged and enthusiastic and really want to be there and, and, and want to be learning. Um, and as you noted, they'll, they'll ask a lot of questions. They'll, they'll make known what they want. Um, are there other commonalities that you, you see across the, I guess, the types of people who tend to be attracted to this kind of lifelong learning programming? Well, you know, what we, we say is there are no prerequisites. People just need to come with a spirit of curiosity. Um, so what we see is pe- there's a lot of hunger for the humanities. There mm. were, um, among men and women, people who kind of grinded it out in college, you know, to get that accounting degree or sciences degree to go to med school. Um, they're really hungry for the humanities. They want to take classes on poetry, literature, fiction, the arts, um, performing arts. Um, we also have a pretty robust science offering. Um, I was stunned to discover in the fall catalog, there was a course called the history of calculus. Now I dropped that class twice in college (laughs) and have managed to get to my through my career without having to use calculus. But, um, I thought it just really intriguing. Um, we've, we've taught courses on organic chemistry. Um, you know, we'll teach classes on sign, Sondheim, um, you know, all kinds of things. But um, I think really the arts and that kind of, you know, right brain, um, you know, watercolors, you know, paint and collage. So it's mm. a real variety. Yeah, it sounds like maybe things people didn't get to do enough of earlier in life. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah it's funny because I'm, I'm a big, you know, literature guy. My whole background is in literature before I got involved in, you know, this, this world of lifelong learning. Um, but I've been thinking more and more lately as I've gotten older that I really would like to understand science and math better than I do. So yeah. I may, yeah. be, I may well, be showing up at Ollie at some point for that. Well, I think that's, and, and maybe that's a better way to frame it, is people are hungry to explore what they didn't explore. If I could take the history of calculus without having to do it or, or feel like I was going to be graded or it was going to kill my GPA and impact my grad school prospects, I might feel really differently. Um, so it really is all about the joy and love of learning. And so I think our members are incredibly vibrant and enthusiastic and passionate. If you're aiming to build a vibrant, enthusiastic, passionate community of learners online, we encourage you to check out our sponsor. Compartners helps learning businesses conceive, develop, and fulfill their online education strategy. Their solutions begin with Elevate LMS, an award-winning learning platform that provides a central knowledge community 
and drives learner engagement. To extend the value of Elevate, CompartNers provides a wide range of online education services, including curriculum design, instructional design, fully managed webinars, webcasts, live stream programs, and virtual conferences. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash compartners. And now back to the interview as Jeff and Chris discuss the role of membership as an element of Ollie's business model. And you, if I understand correctly, um, you regard the participants in your programs, not just as students, but as members. I mean, you describe them as members. Why, why is that concept of membership uh, an important part of, uh, of it? And I don't know if that applies to all. It does. Uh, does it apply to all of them? It, it applies to all the Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes. And part of, I'll start with initially, it's a key um, ingredient to the financial pro forma of these lifelong learning institutes. Mm. One of the things that Mr. Osher was very thoughtful about, and, and I appreciate it so much because I've worked in nonprofits um, of all sizes, but um, there are four legs to financial pillars to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes. There's membership, which you is anywhere from $35 to $75 a year just to be a member. And that gives you the right to take courses. And then you have course fees, which is another source of revenue. Um, you also have um, the ability to raise money um, from your members for specific, you know, um, efforts like hearing loops or technologies, things to improve the program. And then the fourth is an endowment, which was provided by the Osher Foundation. So having those four, four streams of revenue really um, help keep the program very stable. Um, and, you know, the fundraising is really the margin of excellence, you know, like it is in a lot of state universities. If you want to do extra things or like ha- we'll, we'll have a very robust campaign for this new facility, but that's the primary driver behind the notion of membership. But we also really um, talk a lot about the importance of a learning community and for people to feel safe and to feel welcome and affirmed despite what their backgrounds are. Um, we talk a lot about the importance of respect and civility, of balanced perspectives, of kindness and compassion, and what's required to really truly have a learning community. Um, and I think you'll see that um, while there may be variances in how we, you know, what our course offerings and activities look like, I would say that this notion of community and face-to-face connection is really a universal theme in all the Osher Lifelong Learning Institutes. Mm, I love that because um, I, I feel like that, you know, particularly in more sort of continuing education, traditional continuing education, professional development type programs, you know, you, you get the content, and a lot of those, it's about getting the credit uh, as well. But it, it it feels like you've created a real sense of culture. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, there there is a culture of Ali, and I know I've uh, people I've met who've participated, and it seemed to exude that. You know, they 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 definitely like that culture. Mm-hmm. We really try to encourage a sense of pride and ownership in it, so it's a you know self governing organization um, as much as possible. Mm. And you, you touched on this um, just a little bit in, in, in what you were saying uh, just a moment ago. But, um, I mean, my understanding is that individual OLLI programs uh, do have to demonstrate a certain level of success um, in order to receive, you know, the, those endowments, those, that funding that comes from um, the Osher Foundation. Um, I mean, wh- what have you seen as some of the characteristics of the most successful uh, programs 
Well, I would say, you know, the, the, if the answer to your first question is typically that has to do with a level of membership. Mm, okay. I think um, early on, organizations had to have a threshold of 500 to even be considered for an early grant. And that was usually several hundred thousand. And then over time to reach a million dollars, you had to, I think, have membership of a thousand individuals. Um, And then, you know, our program, I think we're very lucky to be in a very economically vibrant community where a lot of people want to retire. We have outstanding medical facilities, great climate. So, you know, it's interesting at our national conferences, we have folks who are struggling to, you know, boost enrollment and others of us are trying to manage the challenges of growth. So mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit of both. But um, I think what, um, what makes a huge difference is how, I think, is how well the programs are able to really channel the energies and efforts of our volunteers. Um, you know, most of us are located in continuing education, which at a leading university is often, you know, not a high priority in terms right. of funding or strategic support. Um, but we are member, you know, funded and supported. We don't rely on Duke for um, any resources, but we are able to um, really channel the energy and effort of volunteers. I, you know, this program is run with two full-time staff and uh, several part-time staff at the cl- at you know some of our classroom facilities. But there is, we have over 560 volunteers you know, who are engaged in really meaningful roles. Um, 300 of those are instructors. Wow. That, that's so it's impressive. a lot of leveraged yeah. labor. Yeah. Well, that's impressive that you're, you're, you're pulling off the number of offerings um, that you are um, with, as you said, you know, two, two staff, two full-time staff. Uh, mm-hmm. So obviously uh, uh, great reliance on, on volunteers. And again, kudos to those, those volunteers that are helping to make that happen. Um, that that said, I mean, um, you are uh, what we would characterize as a learning business, mm-hmm. um, and so for us, that means that you know you're you're marketing and charging fees for the learning experiences you deliver, and you just talked a little bit about the the membership fee, and then you know charging for um, specific uh, learning experiences. I mean, what what challenges or constraints have have you encountered in in, in operating as a business? I mean, are there people who, you know push back against having to pay, um, you know, what tends to work well when it comes to attracting people to, to Ollie? Well, I think we're, first, we're fortunate, again, to be in a very economically vibrant community. I, mm. I grew up here in Durham, and I can tell you it was not this hip, hip and happening that's, that's probably <laughs> when, true, yeah. when I was growing up. Um, I think um, some of the challenges is you're working with people, um, you know, in a life stage where they're really, really vibrant and, you know, engaged until they aren't, until something happens. So we can go into a fall semester with 160 courses and, you know, publish a catalog. And by the time classes start six weeks later, we can have lost four or five instructors, either because of their own health issues or health of a spouse. And that's particularly challenging and heartbreaking, you know, for the community because um, it happens to... Um, not just the members, it happens to all the people who were excited about taking their classes. We don't try to, you know, to get other people to teach the classes, but that kind of, you know, that's a, a factor in our work. Um, I think our biggest challenge is really managing the growth. Um, we're teaching right now in 23 different facilities um, in four counties. And, um, you know, 
many of my peers, you know, have much larger staffs and they're programming one large facility. So mm. I think space is, is definitely space and staffing are huge challenges. Um, but we're, we're making some headway on that. And, um, I think, um, our university has a increasingly stronger understanding of what we have to offer the larger university community. So I think we'll be making some progress there. One of the things that I, um, would say as a challenge as a new director is there are, um, you know, I've always worked with very sophisticated donors in my fundraising, you know, career, people who are very educated um, and who often give, you know, millions of dollars and have strong opinions. And it would, it was always my job to listen to that. And it is also an Ollie, but the level of engagement, which of course is the source of strength, can also be a challenge because you're trying to make decisions for a, a learning community of 2,400 members and, you know, three, if you're not careful, three or four want to drive the whole, um, the whole ship. So, um, managing, you know, a variety of cultural norms and around communication is another, another aspect, I think, to my role. Um, many of the instructors, you know, um, are facilitators in classes or, you know, that, um, talk about, um, issues in the world today, you know, um, that, um, and I've seen, and we've seen at the national level, this, the, the level of incivility is percolating down into PTAs and church communities and, and Ollie's. And so I think making sure our classrooms continue to be places where people can, you know, have robust debates about issues and, um, and still feel safe and respected, um, is something that I think I feel a great deal of responsibility for ensuring the continuation of. Right. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to that, uh, point about culture um, that we mm-hmm. were discussing earlier and really preserving, sustaining that, uh, that culture that's going to lead to, to a supportive learning environment. Have you, I, I wonder um, something you said a while back about, you know, continuing education uh, departments. Um, these weren't your words, but they, they tend to sort of be the stepchild of, uh, of, uh, of big universities. But I, I've noticed, and I know you've only been there a year, so I don't know what your perspective is on this, um, but I feel like major universities are starting to tune in more to this older audience. I know, I know, for example, I didn't used to receive, I went to the University of Virginia and I didn't used to receive emails from them all about their lifelong learning programs. And now I get them all the time, um, which makes me think uh, this is becoming a higher priority. Do you, do you sense that? It, it absolutely is. And even at Duke, there's a, a you know, an effort now to basically re-envision continuing ed. It's, it, it is a profit center in a lot of you know, universities. Mm. Um, it's also a way of staying engaged with your alumni. Um, and that's important from a development, um, you know, fundraising perspective, as well as just right. the vibrancy of the alumni body to support students' internships and extracurricular activities. So I do think, um, you know, I, I say that only having worked at a business school <laughs> that, um, saw the university as simply annoying. This was at another university. Um, but they really saw themselves as an independent kind of profit center and um, their norms and way of, of doing things were very different from the rest of the university. Um, I think there's a lot of freedom in continuing ed. So um, for me, um, I think that Duke, there are also in every school, professional school here at Duke, there are continuing education efforts. And what is unclear 
down the road is what will happen if there's some effort to try to coalesce and bring those together to share resources. Um, I'm not really sure about the status of that, but I think that's happening at other universities. There's a lot more distance learning and a lot of resources being brought to bear. I do think um, the majority of OSHA lifelong learning institutes are really focused on in-classroom, in-person learning. Um, there are some there's some experimentation and conversations going on about um, ways we could broadcast what we're already doing. Um, but I would still say that's a pretty nascent effort nationally. If your learning business is committed to experimenting and analyzing the results to find out what really works, be sure to check out our sponsor for this quarter. Authentic Learning Labs is an e-learning company that offers products and services to help improve your current investments in education. One key product is Authentic Analytics, a dedicated suite of visualization reports to help analyze and predict the performance of education programs. Organizations use Authentic Analytics to easily scan through volumes of data in intuitive visuals, chart performance trends, and quickly spot opportunities, issues, and potential future needs. Find out more at leadinglearning.com authentic. And now back to the interview as Jeff asks Chris about new approaches and initiatives that Ali at Duke University may pursue in the coming years. Well, and I was going to ask, um, I, you know, because I know you're, you're wrestling with space issues, uh, obviously, and you're coming up with some ways to address that. But, um, but distance learning would be an obvious, you know, way to, to have more c- capacity. Um, sounds like you're at least thinking about that, though, in early stages. Are, you know, are there other, any other, you know, big plans that you have in the coming, you know, one to five years for new approaches you're going to take or or new things that you're going to be doing? Well, I think right now the building is really the number one priority because, you know, of our constraints. And we feel like once we are able to pull people together and create a greater sense of social connection, you know, one thing that's interesting nationally, and I'm sure this is on the radar screen of your your audience is, you know, more baby boomers are aging alone than any other time in history. You know, part of that is they're late to marry, quick to divorce, um, and they had fewer children, and they were all about independence and autonomy. And so, um, there's a real hunger. And, And part of this is also what's happening in terms on Facebook and electronic communities, but Um, there is a real hunger for face-to-face connection. And in seniors, it has a huge impact on their health and mortality. Um, You know, they're saying people who are socially isolated and lonely um, have a much greater chance of um, early early death than, you know, people who smoke, you know, three packs of cigarettes or are chronically obese. You know, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. that serious of a health risk. Um, so we're really focused on creating space where our members can be together. I do think over time, this idea of distance learning will, um, become more of a priority right now. We're serving people who can, um, who are healthy enough to get in their car and drive to one of our classroom sites. Um, I think down the road, um, I can see these retirement communities, continuing care retirement communities or what we call CCRCs or, um, active adult communities wanting mo- the ability to broadcast right. into a single classroom where people could be face to face, but they wouldn't have to get on the interstate and drive 30 minutes from Raleigh or, or you know, Pittsburgh 
to take in one of our classes. So I think that's inevitable. We have a lot of creative, you know, um, folks with IT backgrounds who are experimenting and doing some videotaping and actually even some podcasts. So um, I expect our members will, um, will help us, you know, at least launch that effort. Right, right. Yeah, it seemed, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking an, an analogy there is what often happens with, um, with church or, you know, synagogue or mosque, whatever, you know, you happen to be involved in that uh, particularly as people get older, um, very often they get, they get very involved in that and, and that is their social community and they want to be there. Um, or at least this has been sort of a traditional thing. I'm sure it's probably mm-hmm. declining, but then, but eventually they reach a point where they just can't, you know, um, right. but, but they still want that involvement. Um, and, and t- technology perhaps, uh, provides an avenue for doing that. So, well, and you know, whereas I might not want to turn on the TV and watch a church service, you know, it may be meaningful if you're watching your church's service and right. your minister preach. And so I think one of the things we have yet to test is, you know, we have some beloved instructors and there are people who would love just to hear the audio of it. Right. Um, they don't, they know what Dr. Wendell Musser looks like and his passion for Roosevelt and Churchill. And so they don't have to have a fancy, um, you know, broadcast of it. I think just listening would be really powerful enough um, in some cases, but I think we've got to figure that out. Yeah, definitely. And the nice part of being part of the Osher Lifelong Learning Network is that um, we can share resources um, with each other. So one of the things that we've been talking about doing is developing an app, um, you know, just to help our members understand, you know, what's being offered social events and stay more in touch with what we're doing. And the, you know, the exciting thing is I could make one phone call to Chicago and find out who else is doing one. And there's only one other program that was, but um, there's a lot of shared information. So when I'm trying to, you know, launch a new program or something, we have a national listserv. I can go out there and talk to the three people who are doing exactly what I want to replicate and they'll give me all their information. No copyright, nothing. It's just, so there's a lot of shared efficiencies. Um, and the colleagueship is really, as a professional, is just extraordinary. And you just mentioned this and it's a good thing to highlight that you do have this this national resource center that that's at Northwestern. Is that? Is it that is. Yes. And we have monthly webinars on a variety of topics. Um, they send out monthly newsletters. There's only three staff in the center, um, but there's someone who manages all the online learning for the executive directors, um, as well as an executive director of the resource center and someone who plans, you know, the conferences, which we do every 18 months. Right, right. That, well, that's, I mean, that's just so powerful to, to have that sort of coordinating, you know, central resource center, but then this network of, you know, more than 120 different institutes to, to be able to learn from each other. Um, just, just very powerful in, in, in terms of... It really you know, is. Yeah. I was fortunate to attend um, two conferences within the first three months, and I, mm. it, it made an enormous difference because... There are very few people in my continuing education program that really knew much about Ollie. So they could help me navigate the IT platforms and, and the university's HR. But when it came to the day-to-day work on the programs, um, I really relied on my assistant and, and the national office. Well, that's great. Um, and it sounds like you've, you've settled in well and, uh, and now have a good work ahead of you. Um, 
So it's, it's been great to have you on and, and, and uh, hear about what you're doing. Um, I'll switch gears just a little bit. It's not too much of a shift because we've been talking about lifelong learning all along, but now you know, I want to, to shift to your own uh, lifelong learning and to a, a question that we ask of all of our guests here on Leading Learning. Nobody gets away without answering this. And it's, uh, and, and it's one that does focus on, on your personal learning. So here's the question. It's, what's one of the most powerful learning experiences you personally have been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, I have to really reference the, the two years prior to coming to this role. Um, I had my own business, um, which it was a very powerful learning experience. But, that, that is um, powerful. But uh, my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and I decided to come home and help my dad take care of her for several months. And that was a really powerful learning experience, both in terms of the, you know, group of um, Ollie members that I came to work with, my level of compassion and understanding of what they are navigating day to day, or what they're headed toward, in, despite whatever levels of denial they may be engaged in, um, was really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. It taught me the real, the importance of presence and listening, um, and how that's really a superpower in your business is I don't have to have the brilliant ideas, but I need to be able to listen to people who really want to make a difference and want things to courses to happen here. I also think um, it really helped me understand the importance of learning to receive support. I think I was raised in a generation where, you know, in the eighties in particular, when I got out of law school, where there was just pressure, you know, to achieve and, and this focus on independence and autonomy And I don't think I really understood the power of community or would allow people to help and support me. Um, And I think that experience really helped me understand how much richer my life and our family's life was when we were able to let my parents' community support, um, support us. And that was a key lesson even for this job because I have always taken a lot of pride in ownership of my work. And here it's very clear that it's the work of the Ali community and that my work is to support the members in creating the kind of community and learning they want, not what I would choose as the director. Mm -hmm. So it it really, I think was humbling and um, helped me understand the importance of bringing your heart to work. Well, that, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I know, you know, more and more people are in that position, um, similar to yours, where you know having to be a caretaker for um, a, a parent or somebody else in, in their family um, who's aging or sick or, or, or both. Um, in fact, when you and I met in person uh, for the first time, which was uh, just two or three weeks ago, it was at a caretaker conference that I know uh, yeah. Ali was mm-hmm. involved in, and um, that that was a very inspiring environment for me to to listen to some of the people who were speaking and, and what their experiences uh, had been. And I can definitely understand um, at a personal level, you know, why that's uh, such a, a, a powerful learning experience. So again, thanks, thanks for sharing that. And thanks again for, for coming on the show. Um, if listeners want to learn a little bit more about you and about uh, your, your work at uh, Ali at, at Duke, um, where, where should they go? So we have a website. Um, it is www.learnmore dot duke dot edu backslash o l l i um and that will get you um to the ollie website i will warn you it is you know a little too text heavy it's you know um 
we can do better, um, but that will give you an idea. You, you're also welcome to call the office um, and ask for a catalog. Um, that number is 684-2703, and we can mail a catalog. Um, Ollie, Ollie at Duke is really proud of our catalog. <laughs> we, it, among Ollie's, it's it's kind of epic. Um, it's almost 90 pages for the fall. And wow. um, so um, those are the two, two best ways to learn about it. Okay. Well, yeah, I can imagine the catalog is important when you have uh, as many offerings as, uh, as you do. Yeah. And people like to see it. Um, they like to feel it. So we have, we posted online about a month before it's actually printed and is in their hands, but um, we're, we're, we're not abandoning that anytime soon. Okay. Well, I, I, that probably fits your audience well. And, uh, and we'll be sure to put the, um, the link to the, the website and the, and the phone number, um, both of those in the show notes so that uh, folks can access those easily. So, well, great. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being a guest on Leading Learning. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks for the work that you're doing. That concludes the interview with Chris McLeod. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 195. When you check out the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That will put you in the right place. You can also leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you happen to use to listen to Leading Learning. Jeff and I personally appreciate your ratings and reviews, but more importantly, they play a really big role in helping the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And we'd be grateful if you check out our sponsors for this quarter. They really, they help to make leading learning possible. So find out more about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com slash authentic and find out what Com Partners has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash compartners. Finally, please tell others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. You can like us there and share us with others on Facebook. However you do it, please spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <laughs>